Hi, and welcome to the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. On today's episode, we'll talk about how coronavirus has changed the way lawyers practice, live, and network. We are going to talk with a law student who has had to shift to online courses, a recent graduate who was laid off during the pandemic, a staff attorney for legal aid dealing with LGBT people impacted by the crisis, and a law professor slash solo practitioner who is helping others move to working in virtual spaces. We have a lot to talk about and an exciting group of guests. But before we get started, I wanted to say a few words about our dear friend Richard Weber, who we lost last month due to complications of coronavirus. Richard was a longtime board member of Legal. He was a kind and gentle person with a big personality and a charitable spirit. We are devastated by his loss, and we will continue to serve our community with him held closely in our hearts. I know that many others are dealing with personal and professional loss, and we hope that this episode will help as we look to find community and to navigate through this difficult time. So let's dig in. Our first guest is Victor Tarantino. Victor is a 2L at Hofstra Law School. Great. Hi, Victor. How are you? Good, thanks. How are you? Great. I, well, considering I'm, I'm doing great. I'm mm-hmm. um, as best as we can. <laughs> right. Um, so it's really uh, exciting for me to be able to talk to you because, um, you know, you're a former Hank Henry fellow. You've been very involved in Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. Uh, you're also a student of mine out at Hofstra mm-hmm. um, for the Law, Gender, and Sexuality class. Um, so tell me a little bit, uh, how, how are you, first of all? I'm okay. Thank God, you know, I have my health and I am not sick. So that sort of hasn't been the biggest distraction, but dealing with, you know, family and working from home have been a unique struggle. So where are you are, where are you right now? Are you with family or? Yes, I live with family and I commute, well, I I did commute to school. And where I live in Long Island. Okay, gotcha. And how is your family doing? So, um, believe it or not, about a month ago, my sister, who is an ER nurse, she was exposed to the virus and she was in a, um, a precautionary quarantine. And then what happened was um, my family started getting sick. And so by the end of the two weeks, um, almost everyone in my family was sick and they couldn't leave their beds. And we wanted to make sure that we were containing if it was the virus, that they didn't touch anything, that they, they weren't touching the shelves and they weren't getting their own water. So I sort of had to do everything and sort of like step up to the, the plate. Um, what was that like for you? And to try to be juggling law school and I don't know if you're doing, are you doing any internships at the moment or were those all on hold? How? What was your professional life like as a law student as you're dealing with um, issues affecting your family and and the virus broadly? So at first it was easier. I'm not sure what it was. Maybe it was just because, you know, fresh out of being in in an in-person class, um, I took, I made sure to, to make law school, you know, my priority. But as my family was getting more and more sick, and needed more and more of my help. It was it was distracting because anytime they wanted water, or they were hungry, or 
I needed to wipe down everything. Um, it took a lot of my time. And then also it started to take up my worry because, you know, my mother wasn't leaving her bed. So it was, it was just a very stressful time. Um, and Hofstra did not miss a beat. You know, we stopped going in person to class on a Friday, I believe. And then that Monday we were, you know, having classes on Zoom. So it was, it was a lot. The, the beginning transition was fine, but I think as time is going on, it's getting more and more difficult to stay on task. So describe that process now that you're used to, you know, we're both kind of getting used to having classes online. What's it like to, you know, adapt to that on a more long-term, um, in a more long-term way? How are you, you know, maintaining focus? How are you carving out workspace and work time for yourself? Mm -hmm. How are you staying engaged in lectures, all of that? So I'm very thankful to have my own room. And in my room, I have a desk. So um, I'm very thankful that, I, that I'm able to have that workspace. And then as far as allocating time, I just make sure that I attend all of my classes and that I do all of my readings before class. And then I try and make sure that I don't do work too late because I don't want it to mess with my sleeping and um, the blending of the two spaces, my personal space and my workspace. So, so much of law school, in addition to um, your assigned reading, the learning that you're doing, your outlines, the actual lectures, is about building a network for yourself, of building, mm -hmm. um, maintaining friendships with other law students, building community there are a lot of you know extracurricular activities at school how are you dealing with that kind of missing aspect of the law school experience is it still just around but changing a little bit or what's that like for you so when i was in school i was i'm always pretty focused and i make sure that i have my own little cubicle my own table and only when I'm transitioning from the table to class or like in class, will I really um, speak with other law students and try and like expand my network and talk to my friends. Um, but now thankfully, you know, we have, you know, Facebook, Zoom, there's so many different platforms that we can stay in touch. And so my friends and I have been utilizing that. And then as far as um, a more professional network is concerned, Hofstra's Outlaw is actually planning a citywide Outlaw Zoom sort of happy hour or something to get kids who normally wouldn't be able to meet to meet and sort of take advantage of the opportunity that Zoom is sort of a normal means of communication right now. And outside of uh, law school and, and thinking about the real world, um, what are your plans for the summer? Have they changed any now that, that the situation has changed? No, actually, as of now, things are still in place. So I interned at a firm last summer, and I'm going to be at the same firm for this upcoming summer. And their Office of Attorney Recruitment has been in constant contact with us, just reassuring us that, you know, they're here for us and they're thinking about the incoming summer interns. And so that's really good to hear, but you know, some of my friends aren't as fortunate and they've had either positions taken away or less reassuring messages from their employers and from the firms. And I'm sure you've given some thought to, um, you know, what it's gonna be like to search for a job if, um, 
you know, the economy doesn't come back as quickly as we all hope it may. Um, mm -hmm. Are they, are there resources at school or how are you kind of preparing yourself and how are your fellow students thinking about, um, you know, graduating into an uncertain economic future? So far from the people that I've spoken to, it sort of depends on the area of law you want to practice. So if you were going into maybe bankruptcy law, that might be a really good time for you. But if you were going into M&A, you know, maybe not so much. So I guess it's just more of a matter of whether or not the firms, like firms in general, are going to be affected enough that they won't hire additional attorneys in the near future. What do you, what can you tell us about um, grading and exams? Have you heard anything about the way that that's going to be changing for you as a student? So right now, Hofstra has moved to a mandatory pass-fail grading system. And I believe that that means that rankings um, and GPA are basically going to be on hold, you know, assuming that you pass your classes. And I know other law schools have done things like, um, like an optional pass-fail or an A, a B, and then pass-fail. Um, I appreciate the pass-fail because I'm trying my hardest to learn. You know, I want to be the best lawyer that I can be after school. But at the same time, this is, this is stressful. This is a very unique challenge that I never thought that I would be in. Especially for 1Ls. I can't imagine, what, you know, to be a 1L now must be very difficult. Um, I've heard that some schools, their OCI, their, um, yeah, their OCI is going to be moved to like January or the spring. So that way 1Ls have another semester to boost up their grades or do something for themselves and to meet the needs, specific needs of the firms, you know, when things are a little bit more certain. Yeah. How are you maintaining, um, you know, taking care of yourself? Are you doing, I'm assuming you're carving out some time to have fun and absolutely uh, care for your mental health and absolutely. Uh, well-being. What are, what are some of the things that you're doing to cope? So every morning I have a friend who lives in Wisconsin and we get on like a, a Skype phone call and we have a morning ab routine. Yeah. And um, I've also been trying to, you know, work out a little bit. I have some gym equipment. So working out, you know, making sure that I maintain a healthy diet. Um, and then of course, Netflix. <laughs> what are you watching? Um, right now I'm watching Dynasty. I think it's a reboot. Um, and I watched it because there is a supporting um, role who is like an LGBT character. Uh -huh. And so I'm here for the queer content and that's basically it. <laughs> <laughs> so you it's haven't hard. watched Tiger King? You're the only one. No, yeah, so I did watch Tiger King. My my friends strong-armed me into watching the first two episodes, and I, I just, I couldn't get into it. I don't know what America is so obsessed with. Have you seen it? I haven't, because I have a dog that will bark at um, <laughs> animals if they're on TV, so it would just be so stressful for her to have to mm -hmm. bark at the tiger the whole time, but I yeah. can tell, and if I ever get out of this house, I will watch it in a... Um, private location that is far away from animals. I gotta tell you, I, I do not think you're missing anything. You might be missing the, the inside joke to the memes that have just been blowing up all over Facebook and Instagram. Yeah. But aside from that, I don't think you're missing out. Oh no. I, if I get a bunch of negative comments and listeners start coming, 
<laughs> Maybe we should keep your name anonymous just in case. You're right, they're gonna come for me. <laughs> you just don't know. Um, wow, so uh, are there any other thoughts that you have about, um, you know, what this, situ what this has all been like for you or advice that you have to other law students? Um, you know, any, any words of wisdom? So when I, when this first started, I sort of thought that this would be enjoyable and I'm not really sure why. Um, and then it just got really difficult and I consider myself lucky. You know, I have, like I said, I have my own room, I have a desk, I have a laptop. Um, and you know, I'm sort of, I'm not in a house where everyone is working from home and, you know, utilizing the Wi-Fi. But I know people who have it so much worse than I have it right now. And if I'm thinking that this is difficult, I can only imagine. You know, I have a classmate who moved back with their family in Pakistan. And so their class finishes at like two o'clock in the morning their time. Yeah. And so I guess I just want to stress how this time, you know, we just need some sympathy for people who are in unique circumstances that we might not even consider right now. Victor, that's very wise and I appreciate it. I know that um, for me, having you in class and your fellow classmates, I've just been, Hofstra went online so quickly. Um, even before many of my friends and even my, my husband, my family had changed their behavior around uh, COVID and social distancing. And so it really felt like this was impacting us um, quickly and um, everybody just handled this with um, professionalism, mm -hmm. uh, thoughtfulness, care, and a good goodwill. I do think we're all kind of going through this and together and it's um, it's a time where we all need to be reaching out and, and not pulling away. Our next guest is Daniel Shinishan. Daniel is a recent law grad and a talented young lawyer who was unfortunately laid off after six months at his new firm. Hi, Daniel. How you doing? Hey, Eric. I'm doing well. How are you? Doing great. I mean, you know, we're both kind of hanging out in the wilderness, and it's been a welcome um, escape for me, at least, uh, to get away from the city this time. How about you? Definitely healthier than I've ever <laughs> been. A lot of outdoors activities, a lot of sleep. Nice. So you're getting that fresh air? It's really nice. We've been kayaking every day and hiking and just trying to distance ourselves as much from news as possible. Wow. It sounds like some, some real uh, hardcore self-care there. It is. <laughs> a lot of meditation, a lot of yoga. That's good. So, Daniel, talk to me a little bit about your recent, relatively recent graduate. Give me a little bit uh, about your experience, where you went to school, what what you did right out of school, and uh, what what brings us to where you are now. Sure. Um, I went to Cardozo. I graduated in May 2018. Um, I assumed during law school I was going to go into human rights law. That's always been what my passion was. Um, after law school, I had student loans to pay off, so human rights wasn't the first thing I was able to jump into. Um, I started clerking for a judge in New Jersey where I, um, uh, she, she was a 
Union County Superior Court judge who handled the domestic violence docket, which was really interesting. Mm. Um, I did that for about a year. And then immediately after I started at a civil litigation defense firm uh, on Wall Street, where I did premises liability, uh, labor law defense, uh, negligence, motor vehicle stuff, you know, general liability. Um, and I did that for about six months until the uh, coronavirus outbreak. All right. So um, what was it like? What was your clerk clerking experience like? Clerking was amazing in many ways and awful in many ways. <laughs> um, it was amazing in that I got some firsthand experience um, seeing how a judge thinks and how a judge interacts with the court and how attorneys interact with the court and being on a trial, you know, clerkship, you really get to just see hundreds of lawyers come in and out. You get to see what looks good, what doesn't look good, what, what they're doing that works, what they're doing that doesn't work. Um, so getting that, you know, hands-on experiences was really nice. I got to mediate small claims and special civil part cases, um, landlord-tenant issues, things like that. Um, and I got to manage the judge's docket, which was intense. Um, you know, especially domestic violence. It was oftentimes pretty emotionally draining. Can be very, very intense, but I learned a lot and I'm really happy I had that experience. You know, as I'm listening to you, it's kind of important to remember that, you know, for lawyers, we're on this podcast, we're talking about how coronavirus is um, causing people to make sure that they're taking care of themselves uh, and their mental health and, and, and their physical well-being as well. But it reminds me that lawyering is hard work and we're often dealing with people who are uh, vulnerable or um, living in crisis. And so this is really something that we need to get used to uh, practicing and taking care of ourselves all the time. Absolutely, and that was a huge part of what I was exposed to firsthand during that clerkship. Uh, we, we used to have an expression with the criminal court clerks, you know, and criminal court, you have bad guys on their best behavior, and in family court, you have good guys on their worst behavior. You're having people who are fighting over their kids, their ex is there, their ex brought the new squeeze to court, you know, it's, it's always, really intense emotions that are completely barring people from any logical thought. So tell me a little bit about your work at the firm and then what happened when coronavirus kind of, um, you know, presented itself in your uh, daily life. Yeah, so I started out, um, you know, how, how the structure of the firm works is that there are the named partners and each of them has a kind of team of associates that work under them. Um, and, you know, for the first few months, you are training on everything from reviewing medical records and reporting to insurance carriers, um, evaluating claims, um, you know, drafting motion, motion practice, you know, uh, everything like standard stuff, um, but you're not really handling your own docket um, yet. You're not really leading depositions yet. That That is supposed to kind of happen, I think, in the second half of the year. Yeah. So were you enjoying yourself? Um, I was, I enjoy being a lawyer very much. I enjoy 
thinking very much. And I liked the people that I worked with and I liked the firm. Um, the billable hour thing I could have done without. <laughs> yeah. I think everybody probably feels the same way. Um, it was uh, an intense billable hour requirement. Um, and, you know, you don't really ever find out about all the things you can't build. You know, you can't build for learning to become a lawyer. And so much of what I had to do was learning how to do things that I can't bill a client for. So sometimes you would be working, you know, a hundred hours a week and you're billing 35 out of your 50 hour requirement. And so that could be challenging, but you know, the firm understands that, that you're learning. And so your, your hours are a little bit more loosely looked at uh, at the beginning. So talk to me about, um, your experience with so coronavirus uh, yeah so the, yeah layoff so it hit and they <clears throat> basically started by I, I think they were very surprised at the firm's leadership at how quickly things began to devolve in the city I don't think they were really anticipating courts closing non-essential business um, um, the partners were less than thrilled with the support staff. I think they were nervous. They, they, they had the capacity for attorneys to work remote. They were ready for attorneys to work remote if they needed to work remote, but they were not really prepared for the support staff to work remote. The firm partners realized that there wouldn't be enough billable hours to go around because so much of our billing was tied to court appearances, depositions, travel to and from. Um, and once that was stopping, once we couldn't bill, you know, six hours for a court appearance or, you know, travel to Orange County or NASA or whatever it is to appear for a deposition, to appear for a compliance conference. Um, they just were, you know, they, they called me and they said, we didn't anticipate this happening. We just will not have enough billable hours to go around if they shut down the courts. Um, you know, I was the most junior associate, so I had only been there six months. I think the next most junior associate had been there for a year and a half longer than I had. Um, I, I don't know if they've continued to lay people off since I imagine so, cause uh, that was pretty early on. Um, but yeah, that, that's basically what happened. They, you know, they were very nice. They, they, they were very stressed and very upset. You know, they expressed that this was their, you know, this firm was their baby and that they had put everything into this firm. And I think they were all in crisis mode and they just didn't really, ever think that this was going to be a possibility. What went through your head when, I mean, did you know what was getting ready to happen when they called you in? And um, I definitely was very, very surprised. I did not anticipate that. The part, I had just finished, you know, my office was finally all together. Um, we, we were actually planning a move upstairs that, you know, onto another, onto another office space. Um, I had, you know, just the week prior, the office manager had come by and asked me what furniture I wanted in my new office. And we had been setting everything up. Um, I was very surprised. They sat me down. I think I probably looked quite shocked. I think the first question I asked was, can I, <laughs> the first thing that went through my mind was, okay, it's been six months. So now for the rest of my life, I'm going to have to explain why I didn't have a full year at a place. Um, you know, and I think fortunately the coronavirus explanation works it's just the fact that I have to always make it um because you know usually I, I'd always assumed no matter what I, I'll at least put in a year and then afterwards I can see 
you know, check it. At least then I can say, you know, I can handle a case from inception through most of trial or I can lead deposition. You know, that's, that was the trajectory. And at six months, it's kind of a rough time to be laid off because it's so early in your career that not only are you explaining, no, I promise I wasn't laid off because of something I had done wrong. This was just the circumstances of the firm. Right. But you also just are at right at the edge of getting the experiences that you need to take with you to future applications, to future you know, interviews um, that, that you really just cannot say at six months that, that you have, that you have done, that you're able to do. Um, so I, I was very surprised. I think the first question I asked was, <laughs> can, I, can I tell them I quit? And they were like, yes, of course. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then I realized that to, to, you know, since then that there's just no point in, in doing that. It's just better to be completely frank about what happened. Where's your headspace now? Um, better. Um, I, well, mixed. You know, it's nice. You know, fortunately, my husband works. You know, I, I mentioned he's a doctor. So he, he works in telemedicine, which is a very hot <laughs> area right now. And, you know, we, we're, we've been up at the lake house now for 19 days. Actually, we left two hours after I was laid off or so and, and came up here. Um, and um, it's actually been very probably like the first time, you know, as a junior associate, first year associate at a law firm, you, you don't really sleep and you don't really stop. You know, I was in that office every night till nine, 10 o'clock at night. I was there most weekends, Saturdays and Sundays. Um, and so this has been a weirdly nice, almost vacation. Um, but at the same time, I've been in the process of applying and interviewing. Um, I, I have some things that are lined up, but they're all very assuming that, you know, everything works out kind of offers, you know, I, well, let's touch base in two months, assuming that our firm is still here. Let's da da da, you know, the opportunity is here for you so long as da da da. So I have a lot of those kind of offers where it's kind of nothing with an exact date, nothing with an exact time or any details because of Corona. I know a lot of people are in a much, much worse position. I feel really, really grateful that I'm not panicked. You know, we're not gonna go hungry. We're not gonna not have a roof over our heads. Um, so I can kind of use this as my opportunity to explore some new ideas, explore some new possibilities and see where, where this all takes me. Who knows what it could lead to? Well, that's great. I know that, you know, this is difficult obviously, but you should, um, you know, I, you're a talented young lawyer that goes out there, gets involved, really throws your whole self into networking, giving back, learning new skills. And so, you know, this is, you're gonna, you're gonna go on to the next thing and it's going to be even better than before. And so, um, that's what I keep telling myself. <laughs> Come on, you got it. I hope that your story kind of, you know, brings some comfort to other folks who are, I was just talking with a law student who's worried about graduating into this economy. And I think, you know, your perspective gives folks a little bit of a sense that, look, this can happen to really, you know, the most talented folks among us. And no one is immune from the implications of what this pandemic can do to your plans. And uh, it can only force us to reevaluate 
and move forward. And that's what you'll do. Absolutely. And, and you know, I was going to say it to that point that there's something comforting in the fact that everybody is in the same boat, you know, to that law student and to, to other people who are really scared about going into the professional world at a time where it's just terrible. Like nobody knows how to <laughs> onboard remote. It's just a very difficult dynamic. The fact that everybody is in the same boat, I think provides a little bit of comfort because when it's just you, it's just your group, it's just your community. It can be isolating. It can be more challenging. Now everybody is working on ways to fix this. Everybody is working on ways to modify and amend and, and to adapt and evolve. And, you know, everybody's in the same boat. And, and That's right. Well, I want to let you go. But before I do, my husband would hate me if I didn't ask how the bearded dragon was. Oh, he's... He's so depressed, but the cat is loving it up here. <laughs> she is an absolute heaven. She has so much space. She's becoming an outdoors cat. The lizard is just pissed off. He has a cage half his size. He's extremely grumpy. Um, <laughs> and he's not getting as many fancy blue worms because we don't like going to Petco if it can be avoided right now. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for ending on a... On a <laughs> Uh, I'll post a picture, send me a picture so I can post it on the landing page so folks can check out your, uh, what's his name? Like Poffins. <laughs> it's a long story. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm just going to let it go. All right, Daniel, thanks so much for joining us. All right, thanks, Eric. Good speaking to you. Bye-bye. All right, we're here with Sarah Filcher. She is vice president of the Legal Foundation. She is a staff attorney at Legal Services of Hudson Valley. And we're so excited to be joined by um, Zoom for this recording with a fancy background that Sarah is using straight from um, Rose's Apothecary, is that right? <laughs> That's right. And thank you to Dan Levy for putting all those backgrounds online. It certainly made Zoom meetings more fun. <laughs> you know what? We've all got to do what we got to do. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's showing you how normally I would be doing these podcasts in person, but, you know, with social distancing, even the way that we do the Legal LGBT podcast has changed. So thank you for joining me on Zoom. How are you, Sarah? Uh, I'm doing well, all things considered. I haven't gotten sick yet, so I'm just really grateful for my health and that I'm still employed and that I can still continue to do the work that's so important to me to the extent that's possible with all the COVID restrictions. You were actually uh, just started at uh, the Legal Services of Hudson Valley right before, I mean, not right before, but it's you pretty recently began working there. Um, you know, what is it like to be starting a new job uh, in the middle of this global pandemic? Sure. So it's uh, definitely not what you could have predicted. I've been joking with folks that at my office is just finally cute. You know, for the first time, I have all my diplomas hanging up, and I'm so grateful to the organization that they let me basically create however of an affirming and welcoming space that I wanted for my office. So I, I really did like literally just finish decorating my office within the week before we switched to remote operations. So that was a little bit of a bummer because I've, I've never had, you know, not only the fancy office myself before like that, but to be able to, like I said, create that welcoming and affirming space and then immediately have to leave it was frustrating. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, you're probably just starting to get to know many of your colleagues and bond with them, um, you know, kind of starting up a routine um, and, and how you're handling your professional life. How, is, how have some of those things changed for you? Sure. So with my position, I cover the entire Hudson Valley, right? Everything from Yonkers to Kingston. So when you say just getting to know your colleagues, I feel like that's absolutely correct, even though I started the position in November, because I am going to all of our offices and really seeing the entire quote unquote upstate New York. And so what do you do day to day? What's your uh, position there like? Who are you serving? So day to day uh, on a normal day or COVID specifically now. <laughs> <laughs> Take us back in time to remember a time when it, a normal day just looked pretty typical. Ah, uh, yes. Feels like so long ago. <laughs> <laughs> so my home office is Peekskill. So I'm usually in the Peekskill office a couple days a week. I'm working almost exclusively with folks who either identify as LGBTQ or are living with HIV or are affected by a loved one who's living with HIV. So most days I'm in the Peekskill office, but I'm still on the road a fair bit working with folks all throughout the valley. I work on a large variety of cases, so no two days is ever really alike. I have housing discrimination, employment discrimination, medical discrimination, helping folks who are living with HIV do late end-of-life stage planning, so simple wills, healthcare proxy, disposition of remains, power of attorney, those types of things, and also just a lot of name changes in helping folks navigate the complexities of public and private insurance carriers when trying to receive gender-affirming healthcare. So you do a lot of services for LGBT folks. Can you talk a little bit about how COVID has impacted um, the types of issues that you're touching on and LGBTQ people specifically? Sure. So I think COVID has really kind of renewed the attention to how important the economic and housing discrepancies are within the LGBTQ community. I have a lot of clients who are facing housing insecurities and COVID has not obviously helped that because a lot of folks have lost their primary source of income or they're being asked to shelter in place with situations that aren't safe for their you know, mental Health, but we're telling them to prioritize their physical health because, and that's never a position we want to be in, right? Where we're having to put those two at odds with one another because they're equally important. But the reality is, is there's just not enough safe and affirming housing options. So what we're really seeing first and foremost are those emergency economic issues. Um, and we're seeing, we're really seeing the gap in access to resources within the LGBTQ community. I think it's important to think about the Williams Institute report that came out in October of last year looks at how 16% of cisgender heterosexual people are currently living in poverty, which is already too high. But then when you look at how that compares to the LGBTQ community, that number jumps to 21% for LGBTQ people who are living in urban areas and 26% of LGBTQ people or living in rural areas. So that's essentially one out of four LGBTQ people you know in a rural area still living in poverty, even in 2020. And of course, the rates of poverty aren't the same within the LGBTQ community, right? We're looking at the poverty rates for a white cisgender gay man are not going to be the same for a transgender woman of color. And these are really basic issues that we're still struggling with and we need to continue to commit more resources to now more than ever. So obviously, many members of our community are facing um, worries about uh, the financial situation 
uh, that COVID is bringing. And are you finding that many of your clients are also encountering and dealing with compounded levels of anxiety and fear um, just dealing with COVID in general and how that's affecting their legal needs? Oh, absolutely. Compounded levels. And again, it all goes, for me, it all goes back to housing because we're looking at folks who are struggling with the uncertainty of what's going to happen when the eviction moratorium ends. They don't expect to be either resuming the same job they had before. Um, let me start over. They, they, um, if they've been laid off, they don't know how permanent of a layoff that is just yet. And even if it's not a permanent layoff, which is you know the best case that a lot of my clients can hope for, they don't have reason to expect to be able to have the rental arrears at the end of this three month period. So there's a lot of anxiety and uncertainty around what's going to happen for housing, especially for the renters. There's also a lot of anxiety around the re-traumatization for folks who are living with HIV, the parallels with both pandemics. And there's a lot of really great articles that are coming out about thinking about working with folks who are living with HIV from a trauma-informed lens in terms of comparing the height of the AIDS crisis to what's going on with the coronavirus. And I'm happy to just share those links with you. So thinking about those immediate needs are now jeopardized. It's hurting mental health. You don't have access to the same support, the non-legal supports that you've been relying on. What am I to do? I've been getting a lot more non-legal calls, non-legal questions, I should say, with the calls from my current legal clients. And we're seeing a lot more inquiries about unemployment benefits, certainly. How about self-care for you, Sarah? I know you just moved out uh, and bought a house, which is exciting, and you're painting your cabinets. Are you, how are you dealing with isolation, um, you know, the disconnect from, um, you know, you were very involved with our legal clinic at the center that happens every Tuesday that we've had to go basically all on um, our helpline and not in person. So we're losing a lot of community in the sense that we're interacting with people face to face. What are you doing to maintain that sense of community, connection? Yeah, I would say that isolation for me has definitely been the most difficult out of all of this to just have such a busy calendar all the time, right? Personally and professionally, and then to just have that come to a screeching halt has been an interesting time for reflection and I'm trying to appreciate the little things and find gratitude where I can to reestablish connections with community where I can and look for new ways to bring over those pro bono opportunities. Like you were talking about with the clinic having to move to a digital format where our organization is looking at how we can do more outreach digitally to be able to reach folks where they are and make sure that everybody has up-to-date information as things are changing from week to week. But I, in terms of self-care, I'm totally doing, you know, the, the DIY hair job. I fear I'll have a buzz cut by the end of the week. I've got the foster cats. I've got the pandemic quarantine cats. I've been baking. I feel like there should be a bingo card for this whole thing because I'm sure I would have, you know, scratched off a number of the spaces at this point. Definitely oh been reaching out more to family and friends. So I'm grateful to have that time to catch up. Are you available to cut my hair? <laughs> <laughs> I have the clippers. <laughs> I wish we could do that digitally because there are cats living in mine. 
it's uh it's getting a little really unruly so for sure um so i wanted to ask you we just recently lost um a board member and a dear friend richard weber to coronavirus uh and it seems like in the legal community and in the new york city greater new york city area um coronavirus hit us hard and quickly um and I'm just wondering what it's been like for you personally to deal with, um, if you could share some either experiences with how you'll remember Richard and also how you're dealing with um, just the way that this virus has impacted our friends, our family, our area, and the legal profession. Sure. So, you know, grief is painful enough as it is but when it has to be kind of delayed and put on hold, it's especially all the more painful. For me, it really, not only was it a shock and truly devastating to lose a board member, but then to not be able to gather, to have that community, to mourn, to think about the best way to honor his legacy, to have to kind of put those in-person and those essential conversations on hold is another layer of, of hurt and uh, frustration. And I think a lot of folks are going through that of how, how are you there for your clients? How are you a good attorney when you are also processing grief? Um, one, of the, one of the things that I think law school doesn't do a good job preparing you for is working through mental health issues and thinking about how to be experts in grief counseling. I actually started looking into more resources about talking with coworkers and clients about grief as attorneys. I was shocked how few resources are currently out there. I think it's a great idea for a CLE. If anybody's listening, wants to put that together, uh, collaborate with other folks who are in the mental health profession. I think it's a service and skill set that's sorely needed within the profession. It's, like I said, it's just a shame that we can't come together and mourn as a community when we're losing such important activists and prominent community members like Rich among others. So I will always remember what a truly joyful person he was and how dedicated he was to serving the community of you know, all ages, all life stages, all economic brackets. He was just a joy to everyone. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. Long time listener, first time caller. <laughs> <laughs> all right, and thank you for sharing um, some Moira Rose backgrounds with me. I know my law students are gonna love it when I dial in. Uh, from Schitt's Creek. Our final guest is Meredith Miller. Meredith is a professor at Toro Law School, an attorney in private practice, and a legal board member. And hi, Meredith. How are you doing? Doing well, Eric. Yeah, you hang, hanging in there, holding up? We're holding up, uh, social distancing, probably eating a little too much, but... Uh, keeping things moving along as best we can. So you're not living in the city, you're a little bit outside. Are you in, are you in Long Island right now? Yeah, we've been out in Long Island for about almost a month now, with the exception of one trip I made into the city for an oral argument. We're trying to get a sense of how the coronavirus pandemic here in the US has impacted the way that lawyers are doing their day-to-day -day work. And you have an interesting perspective because you're a professor of law out at Toro 
um, and you're also a solo practitioner. And so I'm just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about um, what the experience has been like uh, teaching, particularly since you've moved online. You know, I was a bit lucky having taught what we call synchronously, meaning um, live online uh, a few years back. So it wasn't as shocking to me um, to have to hop in and, and, and you know, get back on that bike where I think, you know, for a lot of my teaching colleagues um, who uh, aren't as adept with the technology and may, hadn't had that opportunity before, it was a significant, significant uh, a change. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of things that are different about teaching online. There are a lot of challenges. I also think there are a lot of opportunities with it. And, um, you know, the students have been showing up, really doing the best they can under the circumstances. Um, it's it's quite a trip to hold class online and see everybody, you know, in whatever environment they're they're in uh, with whatever's going on in, in the background for them. Uh, and in some ways you get a crash course in, in getting to know your students in a way um, that you don't when you're in, in a sort of sterile classroom. Right, and of course that goes both ways. So um, students are kind of being invited into your living room as well, right? Yeah, they've met my new teaching assistant, uh, my dog Kiki, who is <laughs> usually pretty, pretty good, except for when she starts snoring audibly uh, during class. She's learned more about contract law and business organizations law in the past month um, than any other dog, probably, uh, at least uh, uh, this side of Manhattan, um, east of Manhattan. Uh, and, you know, so you can bring some personality to it. And um, I think in some ways, um, it's strange to say, but I feel like the distance has also brought us closer. Um, I think some of, you know, I still have high expectations for my students and I'm seeing that they still have them for themselves, but that all has to be within reason, uh, given they all have different things that they're struggling with. Thankfully, as far as I'm aware, none of my own students have uh, suffered um, uh, you know, have come down with the virus, but they do have family members who have or are, you know, collaterally uh, affected because their jobs have been, you know, they've been laid off uh, or their parents who they may live with, you know, have been laid off. Uh, and so, you know, everybody's affected by this. And in some ways, some of the errors uh, and the the, the, the things we have to put on uh, to be tough and, and, and demanding um, sort of fall away and, and everyone rises to the occasion anyway, which is also, I guess, a lesson. Have you adjusted the way that, you're, uh, that you normally teach? Is it a lecture course? Do you try to do a, kind of an open dialogue? Do you call on students? Has the new online way of teaching impacted the way that you do your day-to-day -day class? Sure, yeah. I have to do more of the talking. Um, and I think what I'm finding actually to be more exhausting about this medium is I'm sort of building the level of energy in a way because I can't feed off the energy in the live classroom. That's the thing, the big thing I think you miss is that energy. And in some ways, I think, you know, for an hour and a half or I'm teaching one class that's three hours on Sunday, um, you really have to keep up the energy level and do a lot more of the talking. I find you know, that I tell my students, they use the raise a hand feature or I tell them, just stop me, just interrupt me at any point. I welcome that 
um, you know, if I'm not seeing that you're trying to to communicate or I don't see the chat box. And and they have been. But, you know, I actually gave a webinar recently uh, university-wide at Toro with professors from other schools uh, talking about where I think there are actually quite a few opportunities with this. And I think really, um, you know, one of the things is sometimes it's really hard to learn our, learn our students' names. And when you're in Zoom, their names are right underneath their pictures. And so now I know all my students' names. Um, you know, that some of the things that are hard to read um, in terms of how much attention they're paying, you can, you can kind of gauge that. And it, it's been an opportunity uh, to build, like I, I mentioned, build community in unexpected ways. Um, I've had not only my teaching assistant participates, but I've had some uh, of my students' children who, who come by and sit in for part of the class as well. Um, and, you know, we just, we just, roll with it. Um, you know, one of the features I've been enjoying in Zoom is the polling feature. And I've been able to use a polling feature just to check in at the beginning, say, how's everyone doing? Um, and then also uh, to go through questions and get people's feedback on answering questions to, to start uh, or attempt to start a, a dialogue. So um, I think really the biggest challenge isn't that we've moved online. It's that we're teaching in a crisis, right? I think that's the challenge. And I think in some ways, every channeling their anxieties to the fact that we've moved online uh, but at least from from my perspective it's not the online that's making it challenging it's the fact that these are challenging times and there are uncertain times and things are changing you know by the second by the minute what are your hopes for or concerns about uh the upcoming upcoming school year and students graduating into this economy Sure, yeah, my concerns are, are, are more immediate concerns. Um, certainly we have challenges with, with the bar exam. As you know, in New York, it's uh, been canceled for July. They're gonna add, in, I think they decided in an early September date. Uh, and I worry for my students graduating um, about how they stay focused uh, on preparing for that test, um, given the extended timeline and given, you know, the various um, situations uh, that they find themselves in that have been created by, by this crisis. Uh, and then, yeah, of course, I mean, I think there are scary economic times. Uh, you know, I'm hopeful that even if in the immediate term, uh, it means that some of uh, the jobs my students had lined up or were hoping for aren't immediately there, uh, that bounce back. There's always a need for lawyers. Um, you know, we often talk about you know, there's some some sort of conventional wisdom that there are too many lawyers, but in fact, there are way too many uh, clients or potential clients who don't have access to lawyers. And, you know, sometimes a crisis like this helps us figure out those ways um, to reach more, more people. And so I'm optimistic. I think, um, you know, this virus is can only last so long. And I do think the economic uh, problems will slowly uh, rebound once we get um, you know, control over, over, over the virus. And while in the near term, some of my students might need to be a little bit more creative uh, finding work or finding different work than they thought they'd have. Um, you know, I look back on my students from the previous financial crisis, and while in the immediate term after graduation, they were difficult times, uh, many of them, most of them, have landed on a path that's a rewarding path. 
um, and a meaningful path. And, and so, um, unfortunately, this just, I think, extends that time frame. You're a solo practitioner and you do uh, transactional representation um, and other types of uh, consulting work uh, to other clients. Can you talk about how that business has changed and what your hopes and, and, and fears are in, in that particular practice? Sure. Um, so, you know, I don't have a full-time practice because I am first and foremost full-time faculty member. Uh, but with that disclaimer, I do have a vantage point where I do have uh, cases that are ongoing in court as well as transactional small business clients that I work with. And, um, you know, they're actually two different categories of things I do and they've been affected quite differently. Um, for the small business clients I work with, helping them form uh, businesses, sell businesses, you know, um, partnership agreements, and things like that. Uh, I found uh, that a lot of what I do with them, I can continue to do because so much of it was remote um, and not dependent on in-person meetings. Um, however, a lot of them are hesitant to move forward because of the challenges they're experiencing. And of course, they all have considerable, considerable anxiety because their businesses have been interrupted significantly. Uh, and in some ways, um, it's come down to counseling on uh, the funding that's been made available by the federal government and trying to weed through uh, to whom that applies and, and um, how it will be made available, which again is something that's been changing uh, by the minute. In fact, I was on a webinar about it and uh, regulations came down while the speaker was talking about um, some of the funding um, uh, under the CARES Act. And so that's, that's one piece of what I do. But the other piece, uh, which you know, our cases, many of them representing employees in Fair Labor Standards Act cases who have uh, alleged that they have not been paid minimum wage or overtime. Those are um, clients, uh, mostly low-income Spanish-speaking clients that um, they need to have in-person meetings, in-person meetings to keep the cases moving along on the fact-sensitive things that are involved in the cases has uh, become uh, uh, really uh, mostly impossible uh, right now. You know, uh, thing in state court right now, um, it's only going for on emergency uh, motions. And, uh, you know, I think what is inevitably going to happen for, for both of these venues uh, is that they're going to begin to move on to telephone conferences, which quite a few judges in federal court already had been doing before a crisis. Um, I dare I say video conferencing, I don't know. Although we do know that in the appellate courts, they've been doing oral arguments live streamed for quite some time. Um, and uh, so I don't see why uh, it, it wouldn't be possible uh, to have some form of oral argument if, if, if the uh, litigants don't want it to be on submission to do it. Um, and I think the appellate began offering it uh, first department by, by Skype. Um, you know, I was worried there about the Court of Appeal in the beginning of this crisis when they sat and heard oral argument um, with two benches and all sitting uh, a distance apart from each other. Uh, but then it seemed after that, you know, initial round of oral argument, they realized uh, that they, they should cancel the March uh, uh, oral arguments um, and, and reschedule them. You know, one way to bring all of these things together in terms of what's happening to law schools 
and what's happening in practice is that in some ways this crisis has forced us online um, in ways that think have been coming a long time, uh, but there's been resistance. And I think, you know, there are a lot of things we do in law schools, there are a lot of things that are done in courts uh, that could be more efficiently done uh, by uh, telephone or online and just haven't happened yet that way. And I think this sort of forces uh, us to rethink uh, a lot about how we do things. Finally, how are you, this is a, a challenging time for all of us, uh, how are you maintaining just your sense of routine, optimism, uh, self-care, community? I know, you know, you're a past president of Legal, you're on the board of Legal, you're the president of the Network of Bar Leaders, you were very involved with, um, you know, just being a part of the community and giving back to other LGBT and, and other uh, lawyers and legal professionals. How are you, you know, kind of maintaining that aspect of, of what you do so that you can continue to feel some sense that you're belonging to a greater um, profession that's connected? Yeah, that's a great question because I think one of the things that bar associations do and do well is connecting us. Um, and um, much of that in-person action uh, is just, I mean, as a president of bar leaders, we, we try to help promote our members' events. And, you know, it was a slow roll as they all started to get canceled until it was just presumed that things were canceled. But even more broadly, what am I doing? Well, you know that I'm a big Barry boot camp person and it's been really hard not to be able to have that workout. Uh, so I've been going online for their live workouts. I usually don't make them when they're live, but I watch them after and they're recorded. Um, and I try to do, do those with a, 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 a band. What do they call it? Attention band. Uh, take a lot of walks. Um, thankfully, uh, being on Long Island, I'm privileged enough to be able to uh, take a short ride to the beach. Uh, and that has not yet been a place uh, where it's crowded uh, with people. So you can still socially distance. Although I do, weather's getting warmer uh, about what those, those places will look like. Um, and just keeping in touch with friends and colleagues. Um, I've seen some of my friends online for cocktail hour more times than I saw them in person in the past <laughs> six months. Uh, and so that's been uplifting as, as well. And uh, I'm hoping that at Legal we'll, we'll have uh, our board meeting maybe on Zoom and I'll get to see all of all the board members. Are you gardening? I thought I saw that you had built something oh, yeah. to keep the, the deer out of your garden. That's true as well. I've been gardening. I have a whole uh, slew of seeds that I planted three weeks ago, four weeks ago and I built a garden box for them and so I'm hoping uh, once it's clear that the last frost has occurred um, and when I have some vegetables and flowers I'll, I'll make sure I share them because I'll hopefully by then be able to see you again. Right. I can't <laughs> wait to have a real dinner party instead of a virtual one. Right, right. <laughs> you know this has been a particularly difficult time for, uh, for so many of us and uh, we've certainly felt the devastating impact of the pandemic very deeply and personally on the legal board with the loss of our friend and colleague Richard Weber 
can you talk a little bit about how you remember uh, Richard and uh, what it was like to to work with him and how you'll you'll remember his his spirit? Sure, I, Richard will be deeply missed by many. Um, Richard was a board member who was always actively involved. He had played a meaningful role in uh, building a clinic presence in New Jersey. And he was for years, and I think until he still was, on the Judiciary Committee, which is a really important committee of legal um, interviewing judges or candidates for, for judgeships. And he was one of those really reliable contributors, um, but he was also such a bright light. You know, he was someone who always showed up for Legal's events and you come into the room and he had a smile on his face. He was always an easy person to walk up to and know um, that you could have a sort of lighthearted conversation. Uh, and, um, you know, I'm really going to miss uh, his, his smile, his laugh. I can hear his laugh and all of the things he did uh, for the LGBTQ community and for Legal. And I know that um, one of the hardest parts of this has not been able to gather together uh, to honor uh, Richard's uh, legacy. Uh, and I know that once we're able to do so, we're, we'll, we'll, we will do so and we'll figure out a way um, for Legal to honor and continue his legacy uh, so that we, we don't forget his contributions. All right, Meredith, <laughs> thank you so much for chatting with me today. Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure, Eric. And stay well. Stay well. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. This and future episodes of the Legal LGBT podcast are available on iTunes. Give us five stars. Give us a comment. It's how other people learn about us and discover our podcast. And please join us next week where I will be sitting down with Art Leonard, probably via Zoom, so that we can talk about uh, the Law Notes episode of the podcast, which may have a very important decision from the Supreme Court. I know Art is waiting every single day to see if the Title VII case comes down. Um, And I've got my fingers crossed that it doesn't come down, (laughs) but we may be talking about that. Take care.